Uh, we're going to read the first eight verses of Micah 4. We're going to read the whole thing this week. And uh, what we've seen so far in this book is that the Micah is a prophet who's been sent uh, to the people of Judah, uh, God's people in the, in the south uh, of the original nation of Israel. And he's been warning them because of what they've been doing, their idolatry, their rebellion, uh, that Jerusalem, their capital city, is going to be destroyed. If you look at the verse just before the reading, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. London will fall, in other words. So having given the bad news, in Micah 4, the corner turns and he starts uh, to let God's people know of the hope that remains. So let's hear the voice of the Lord. Micah 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine, and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I'll assemble the lame and gather those who've been driven away. And those whom I've afflicted and the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, we praise you, you are a speaking God, that we have your word, the word of the living God, uh, in our hands. And we pray now that the same spirit who inspired these words, the same spirit who caused Micah to speak, uh, will interpret those words to us. Uh, might we be, as we prayed earlier, not just hearers of the word, but doers. Give us receptive hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've ever heard the old proverb, uh, those dancing were thought to be insane by those who couldn't hear the music. You ever heard that? Those dancing were thought to be insane by those who couldn't hear the music. Can you just think about it for a moment, do you get it? <laughs> uh, no one quite knows where it, it comes from. But it was certainly quoted by one of the old Puritan preachers, a guy called Thomas Manton. Uh, and he asked the congregation to imagine, uh, 300, 400 years ago now, so imagine they were out in the fields going to another village. And as they approached that village, they could see on, on the hill a bunch of men and women uh, dancing, jigging around. Uh, and, and, and as they approached, they think, well, what on earth is going on? Okay, why are these people doing such sort of strange jerky actions. What, what, what's going on? And they're confused until they get close enough to hear uh, the pipes and the violins going. Uh, those dancing were thought to be insane by those who couldn't hear the music. 
Christians at times, in fact, Christians perhaps most of the time, ought to look mad to the world around, ought to look insane, because the world around hasn't heard that the gospel song, hasn't heard God's voice. So look at your own life. Uh, do you sometimes look at it and reflect on your own life and think, what am I doing? Or perhaps you've even thought yourself insane. Am I, should I really be giving myself wholeheartedly to the service of God? Or, or perhaps you look at your life and think, actually, I'm not that different from the world around. Uh, those who are, who are dancing to a different tune, if you like, to stretch the metaphor. Uh, their lives and my lives don't look that different. But one of the things that, that, one of the, things that the book of Micah I think, teaches us is that as God's people, as those who've heard a different tune, as those who've heard this song, you see, it's all set out in poetry, heard this song where God promises what he's going to do, our our dance ought to look different. Our lives uh, ought to look different. In particular, because of the promises of what's to come. I mentioned a moment ago that that at the end of chapter 3, Micah had finished by dropping an absolute bombshell on God's people. Their their capital city was going to be destroyed. That's bad news for the kings. That's where the kings lived in Jerusalem. 3 verse 12, Jerusalem's going to become a ploughed field. But it's terrible news too for the whole, frankly, the whole church system. The temple sat in Jerusalem. God's own house is going to be ploughed into ruins. Buckingham Palace destroyed. Westminster Abbey gone. 10 Downing Street, a ploughed field. Uh, This is the utter destruction uh, of God's country, God's people, uh, and even God's king and God's house. And so in light of that, if if, if someone had stopped there, if someone had nipped out during Micah's uh, preaching uh, at this stage, just after 3.12, they'd be forgiven for thinking, well, that's it. If this is coming to us, what's the point persevering? Even our own God is against us. I might as well throw my lot in with another people. Maybe I'll go and join the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Ethiopians. Why persevere when even our own God seems to be against us? Now, hopefully no one here, if you're a Christian, no one thinks that, that God is against them, uh, I hope. But, but still, that, that sense that it just doesn't seem to be working. The world seems to be winning. The church seems to be dwindling, not growing. It can be oppressive. And although we might not ever go as far as saying, well, I'm just going to throw in the towel, I'll give up. It could well be that in our lives at work, our lives away from other Christians, we do just begin to conform, that our allegiance to, to, to Christ dwindles somewhat. If you like, that we don't put all our chips, stake everything on the fact that Christ will one day return. And so let's see how Micah uh, 4 in particular can help us. It begins with, with this a tremendous turnaround. If in 3 verse 12, Jerusalem, Zion, to use its other name, uh, is a heap of ruins. In 4 verse 1, the whole thing is reversed. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The mountain of the house of the Lord is Jerusalem or Zion. It's a bit like calling it New York and, and the Big Apple. They're just different names for the same place. It's going to be the highest mountain. And what was destroyed will be raised up. Uh, throughout the Bible, God often meets his people on mountains. Mountains are, are significant. I suppose famously Mount Sinai, where God met uh, Moses and gave the Ten Commandments. Uh, but actually all the way through the story of Scripture, the Garden of Eden was a mountain, wasn't it? 
Um, we know that in part because the way it's described, the rivers flow down from it, rivers don't run uphill. Uh, we know it too from the book of Ezekiel, which, which just calls it a mountain. Or we could go on to, to the Gospels. Uh, the, the great moments of revelation take place very often on mountains. Think of the transfiguration, uh, where God's voice is heard, the cloud, the glory cloud comes, Christ is there. Uh, God announces, this is my son, listen to him. Moses and Elijah turn up. Where is it? It's on a mountain. Uh, the great commission is given on a mountain. Uh, and throughout the days of the Old Testament, it was a, a mountain, a hill, this hill of Zion that was the center of God's people. And strangely, it's going to grow in these latter days, whatever they may be, it's going to be bigger than it ever was, lifted up above the other hills. The idea is that, um, that, 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 that God's sanctuary will, will be clearly seen to be superior to all others. Uh, in, in the days of Micah, uh, almost all the other kind of religious groupings around would, would build their sanctuaries on hills. Uh, you might remember the phrase in the Bible, the high places, very often uh, Baal and some of these other gods uh, were worshipped on, on hills, on high places. I think of the Egyptians building pyramids, building little hills because you're getting closer to God. But, but when this day comes, says God through Micah, it'll be obvious that, that my mountain is bigger than all the others, far higher. And because of that, there are some consequences, three in particular. When this mountain goes up, what's going to happen? Well, God's word is going to go out, verse 2. People will go to the mountain and say, come to the mountain, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Why? That he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, or the teaching, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When this mountain is raised up, then God's word is going to go out from there. It is a mountain on which, if you like, a prophet stand. God's word will go out from the mountain and people will come and obey. But it's not just a center for, for prophecy, uh, for the word of the God, Lord to go out. It's also a center for kingship. Uh, verse three, he, that's God, will judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. The, the word judge there is kind of, it's, it's a kingly word. It's, this, this, this mountain is going to be the place where God rules settles disputes. You see it a bit further on uh, in verse 7. God promises the lame, I'll make a remnant, those who are cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. Uh, Or again, uh, verse 9, sorry, verse 8. Strange language, you, O tower of the flock. Uh, It's a strange word. It's probably referring to a particular area of Jerusalem. A hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship from the daughter of Jerusalem. The, the king will be back, in other words, whatever other complications there are in the verse. Kings will be back reigning. And that king will be, will it be the Lord himself. So the mountain goes up, you follow the pattern, the mountain goes up, this biggest mountain you've ever seen. Uh, God's word goes out from the mountain and God's king reigns on the mountain. In fact, God himself reigns on the mountain. And because of that, well, because of that, the nations come flocking in. Uh, verse 2, or the end of verse 1, actually. When this mountain is lifted up above the hills, the peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let's go to the mount of the Lord. It'll no longer just be Israel, the Jewish people. This mountain is going to be so huge, so impressive, 
that they'll come from far and wide, from east and west, north and south, and want to go up because they want the word of the Lord. Come, let us go that he may teach us. There'll be such a desire for God's word that people will flock to this mountain. And it'll be a joyous time. Uh, Two characteristics in particular of this mountain are drawn out, or life in the shadow of this mountain. First of all, it'll be peaceful. Because God is king, verse 3, judging, deciding, well, these nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Weapons become tools for blessing, uh, for farming. There is no more war, in other words. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Uh, No more missiles, no more bombs, no more sectarian violence, no more terrorism. Uh, What was once uh, a weapon uh, becomes an instrument of blessing. So this kingdom is peaceful and it's also permanent. It's also permanent. Uh, This mountain, verse 1, this kingdom is established. Uh, It's a word that, that, that gives this sense that it will never be moved again. This isn't another try and the possibility of another failure. This mountain isn't going anywhere. It is so big, so solid, that it is established forever. It is an unmovable rock. This fortress will not fall. This king will never be knocked off his throne. Uh, This prophet will never cease to preach. So do you see the pattern? Mountain goes up, and then the word goes out, preaching goes out, uh, and the king sits enthroned. Therefore, all the other nations come in, and find this blessed kingdom, peaceful and permanent. Yeah, that, that's the picture that, that Mike is painting. And the obvious question is, well, okay, but when, Michael? When are you talking about? When is Michael talking about? As you, as you, as you read it, as you heard it? When did it sound like it's going to happen? I guess our first instinct would be to say, well, it, it must be when, as Christians, you know, we know the rest of the story, it must be when Jesus returns. Only then will wars stop. Only then will there be total peace. Now, there is truth to that, and we'll come back to that. But there are three clues, I think, that actually Micah is not simply speaking about the second coming of Christ, about what happens after Jesus returns. But is in fact speaking about our own day too. Three clues. First of all, verse one, when are these things going to happen? They're going to happen in the latter days. In the latter days. Now, Michael obviously doesn't give any detail there. What are the latter days? He doesn't give a, you know, a date. Well, it's going to be you know, 1933 or whatever. No. But that, that phrase, the latter days, I mean, it's literally in Hebrew, the days behind your back, because you can't see them yet. They're, they're still to come. Uh, but the phrase, the latter days or the last days, is picked up in the New Testament to mean the days between Jesus' first coming and second coming, i.e. the days we live in now. So on the day of Pentecost. Children, do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? What, something very special happened. Yeah, what happened? Do you remember? It, it was good. It's the harvest festival, yeah. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts, Jesus had gone up to heaven. And what did he send down? Yeah. Was well, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, angels were there as Jesus went up. And the Holy Spirit came down. And on that day, as the Holy Spirit came on the church, uh, Peter preached. And he preached on a text from the Old Testament from the prophet Joel. 
uh, and said, look, the last days have begun. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, the prophet Joel said. And Peter says, that's happened. The spirit's poured out, so the last days have begun. You and I are living in the last days. Now, that might suggest, if Micah's using the word in the same way as the New Testament, which is not unlikely, given the Holy Spirit wrote both, that might suggest that actually all 